Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Again, good morning. I'm Pastor Brandon, one of the pastors here at North Main Street Church of God. Those of you who are joining us online or at home today, God bless you. Glad you're here. Um, Let me just start with a little bit of a precursor going into today's message. I realize that the message series we're in is not a popular one. Uh, And the reason it's not popular is because the enemy has held sway over relationships since the fall. Okay, so I realize the subject matter of this whole month is very sensitive to some of you who have gone through some really tumultuous and bad relationships, marriages specifically. And so a series on marriage is something that is not an exciting thing for you to be a part of. I get it. I get it to a degree. Now, my marriage is not broken, but I grew up in a broken home. And as a matter of fact, My mom and dad's relationship at one time, she wouldn't mind me telling you this because she'll probably watch this later and say, I didn't want you to tell them that, but it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. But growing up, growing up, um, my mom uh, had been married three times. So who was my dad uh, that I called dad was my stepfather. And you've heard me state numerous times my stepfather and my relationship was not great. She was married to him for nearly 40 years before he passed away. And I knew early on that it was dysfunctional. I remember being 16. My mom married my stepdad when I was two. And so, like I said, he's the only father I'd ever known. And I remember at 16, 15 years of age... He was never physically abusive, verbally at times, yes, and I don't give him props or leeway for that. It should have never happened. But I remember begging her, just divorce him. Now, I came to Christ at an early age. I'd begun to read the Bible as a weirdo little kid. I was reading that, and you, you know, you try to get kids to read the Bible. They're like, Ugh, right? Yeah, I don't understand it. But I knew right from wrong. I was reading about those things. I had read in the Old Testament, God hates divorce. I'd read in the New Testament that divorce is only allowable by certain standards, biblically. And regardless of all of what I knew, what Scripture stated, I begged her. I remember begging her. She may not remember this, but I was like, just leave him. I don't proclaim to stand up here saying that because I've had, it, had a, a successful marriage of 23 years, whatever you might deem successful, that I've got it all figured out. I've heard from a couple of you over the past week that this series isn't something that you want to be here for, (laughs) or that the nature of the subject matter is really hard because you've had divorces in your life or you've experienced abuse. I don't take those things lightly, and I hope you don't either. What I wanted and felt called to do months ago when we decided to do this series was that marriage is on the ropes in our culture. Actually, globally, it's on the ropes. Do you know the quickest way to destroy a society 
It's through the family. And what is the core structure of the family? Anyone tell me? Husband and wife. And guess what happens when you destroy the family unit that God ordained from the beginning of time as being what would reflect his image? What, do you, what, do you, what happens when you destroy that? If you can destroy that, you can destroy a culture. You can destroy a society. When we devalue the marital bonds of husband and wife, and we devalue the parenting structure and separate kids from the core unit of family, which is mom and dad, you basically can hold sway over any society and destroy it at will to rebuild it into whatever image you desire it to be. And I ask the question, what is the image that our society is reflecting right now? Not the church, that's another question. What is the image our society is reflecting right now? I don't think it's a great one. You may disagree with me and we can have a debate about that later. No matter what side of the issue politically you're on, I'm guessing you would say that society's in rough shape right now in our culture. I say the solution is a Christ-centered family life which reflects his purposes for society. And you may say something different. But I would be remiss and actually going against everything I know to be true if I didn't stand up here and reflect the word of God with integrity and truth. Okay? Is that a good basis? It's not like daddy talking to the kids and you're like, okay, whatever. No, it's not like that. I just want you to understand, I know this is a serious topic. And and I don't take lightly those of you that have gone through difficult situations, have come through divorces, have maybe come through abusive situations. And I weep with you because I know that has to really suck. But I wanted in this series, and I believe what God wanted through this series was to paint a picture of what his ideal is for marriage. Because I don't know that churches are hearing what God's ideal is for marriage in the family these days. Because it's not popular, because the culture is not reflecting that same value right now. And so it's difficult to stand on a stage like this in a society where the popular thing is to tickle the ears or to make people feel good about something. But truth, regardless of where you stand on issues, is still truth whether you like it or not. And I believe truth can be rooted in Scripture. And so that's what I preach from and teach from. Okay? Having said that, next week... We are actually going to get to the point where we look at where all of this went off the rails. These first two weeks of this series are looking at pre-fall. So we're looking at Genesis 1 and 2. Last week we looked at Genesis 1. This week we're looking at Genesis 2 and the creation of humanity, male and female, that God created in this world. And how he joined the two together and they became one flesh. Next week we're going to talk about where that really broke down. And so if you're thinking, I'm only talking about the glories of marriage, I'm not. I'm going to talk about what happened to really derail it to become a perverse thing that God did not desire. 
And then we're going to come full circle back on the last Sunday of this month and look at how did God restore the marital bonds through Christ? Okay? So today, you can turn to Genesis 2. I'm going to start with verse 15 in just a moment. I came across this illustration I think is fitting for the message today entitled, Not Good to Be Alone. Karen Jinks of Houston, Texas writes, When my husband and I were first married, he moonlighted doing remodeling work in people's homes in the evenings and on the weekends. One day, we stopped by the house of an elderly couple that he had been working for. The husband joyfully insisted that we join them for some ice cream and cake, ice cream and cake that evening because it was their 50th wedding anniversary. 50 years, I exclaimed. That's a long time with one person. To which the husband replies, it would have been a lot longer without her. Genesis 2, starting with verse 15. God has created the created order. He creates man. Where does God create man? Huh? Out of the dust. He creates him out of this substance called the dust. He breathes into the nostrils of man the breath of life. But where physically does he create him? <laughs> he creates him outside of the garden. Because if we get to verse 15, he says this twice in chapter 2. The Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. He was created in the rugged wilderness outside of the garden. Wait, was a rugged wilderness pre-fall? Yes, because if you actually understand what Genesis 1 and 2 are describing, is that God had intended for Adam and Eve who they would become known as, to have dominion over the whole created order. And they were to be fruitful and what? Multiply. I said this in our class this morning. God has given humanity the creative processes that he himself has, and we reflect his image by procreating in the proper setting. Do you know that? When the two become one, not just in multiple different ways, but even sexually, what happens? It is an amazing thing within the context of marriage, but what results usually? Life. When two come together and they help to create life that God knits together in the womb of that woman, it is a miraculous thing. That God gives us the joy and the privilege to be a part of that creative process is awesome. But God created them in that space to begin to expand the boundaries, to cultivate the land, to grow it, to populate, to fill the earth. He goes on to say, but the Lord warned him, you may eat freely, of the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you're sure to die. Then the Lord said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper who's just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals, of the, uh, all the wild animals and the, all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the sky, all the wild animals, but there was still no helper 
just right for him. So the Lord God caused man to fall into a deep sleep. While man slept, the Lord God took one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. And he exclaims, at last, this is bone of my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. There's a lot going on there. There's enough going on there to fill several sermons, but I'm gonna hit some high points today in this because I want you to understand what the nature of God's creation of man and woman was for. God does not do anything unintentionally. Everything God does is with a purpose. And it's with ration, a rational thought process and logic. We talked about this this morning in my class. God is a logical being who creates logical things. And as scientists begin to break down all of the created order, they see an imminent design within the created order from the molecular level to the galactic level on a universal scale. So much so that there's so, there's so intricate a design to everything that it's really hard to dismiss an eminent designer who created it all. And so what is God's logic for creating male and female? As God is pulling together the stuff of the earth to create and, and, and to develop everything that is good, he sees something that's not good. What do we learn from this? key point is this. God made male and female as the perfect complementary pair to, feel, to fill and rule his creation as one flesh. So let's look at that. It is not good for man to be alone. That word for man there is singular, okay? That's not plural. He's not talking about mankind. It's in this specific instance, he said it's not good for, because there is only one at this point, There's only, it's not good for man, singular, to be alone. As I mentioned last week in reference to this week's message, biblical scholar Lee Haynes explains this further. Listen to what he says. For the first time, God surveyed all that he had done and said it's not good that the man should be alone. And because of this, he determined to create a helper suitable for him. What does it mean that he created a helper suitable? Can you imagine Adam is there and he is seeing all the creatures God's bringing to, God is bringing to him. And, and he's noticing probably something significant without God even telling him what he's doing. The creatures are coming to him. And somebody said, there's like millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of species. Or different types. How did, how did he name all of those? Well, if you think back to the main dominant type or species, there is one type of dog through which all dogs come from. There's one type of, of equine, you know, horse, through which all horse-type creatures come from. I, I don't think it's inconceivable that God could do something like that. But even if he brought every single subspecies, 
They had nothing but time on their hands. But do you know what's going on here? God is saying it's not good for man to be alone. He brings him the animals. Never with an intention that the animal's going to be the helpmeet or the helper suitable. But I think he's wanting Adam to learn something through this process. Now, when he's bringing the animals, what are they coming in? Pairs. He's noticing that there is one type of the same species that is a certain gender and another type that's another one, and they are fit together perfectly in the created order. Horses, rhinoceros, whatever you want to call them, okay? Any type of creature, they have a pair together. There was no helper suitable. Why? Because these are the creatures we are told from Genesis 1 that Adam and all of mankind are to have dominion over and are not equal to. I know that doesn't bode well in the scientific realm where humans are considered just another part of the animal species or the animal structure, animal kingdom. But God created humans much differently if we look at the Bible's take on this. It had to occur to Adam. There's something unique about every one of these creatures that's coming. Yeah, they're different species, but wow. I want that. I want, I want that. And so what does God do? Causes a deep sleep to come over him. Biblical scholar Bill Zekian writes, Adam's plight was that while he remained alone, he was only half of the story. The image of God in him itself, the imprint of the nature of God, yearned for the presence of a counterpart without whom there could be no community and therefore no fulfillment of God's design. The image of God on the earth can only reflect the reality of the triune God in heaven through a plurality of persons. One of you believes that. We notice this in, in the, the language of the New Testament, not just in the marital union, but in the body of Christ in language. Where two or more gather in his name, he is there among us. We see this imagery reflected in what God's perfect ideal was for society. He structured things in such a way as to reflect his glory, his image, and his goodness. But what the enemy desires is to reflect, and understand when I say this word, I don't mean it in the context in which it's driven, but it's the, the enemy perverts. And what I mean by that is he shifts or changes that which is good to be something other than good. It could be slightly off by one degree and still not be good. You've heard the stories of people who fly across continents on these planes. If they are just a degree off, they will not get to the point of their destination, right? Or even half a degree off. They're going to end up miles, if not tens of miles, or hundreds of miles beyond where they wanted to go. So if you just deviate from the standard that God has put in place, then what happens? You get the result of what is called destruction, death, sin. Let's look at the marital union. What happens when you introduce pornography into the marriage? It deviates, doesn't it? It may not be immediate deviation in your own mindset. You may not see the immediate results of it, but what you've done is you've poisoned a little bit of the relationship. 
and you've caused it to shift, maybe just even slightly a degree off, to where you begin to rely on other imagery to stoke the fires of love between you. And you justify certain behaviors that you think are good and will help you, but don't. Or let's say in the relationships you have, in order to be able to deal with any number of dysfunctions, you drink a little bit too much just to cope. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Or you've seen this? And you justify, I just need to take the edge off. And this will do that. Or I'll take an extra pill. Or I'll take, you know, just an extra drink, you know, because it'll calm me down a little bit. See, the root problem needs to be dealt with and not the symptom of the issue. If the love is beginning to fade, why is that? If the two are not one anymore because they've become adrift on this open sea where you're allowing certain things to enter that marital bond that should never be there to corrupt it in the first place, you're not helping the situation, you're further splitting and causing more devastation. Sarah Lee and I have been married 23 years, going on 24. Many of you have been married longer than that, I know. And I'm sure many of you would say the same thing. It's hard. We live in a world that's fallen and broken. Relationships don't work naturally in unity together because there's this thing in the world called sin and death that we have to war and wrestle against. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 6. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. It does feel that way, though, doesn't it? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but, a, but against principalities, powers, dark forces, and demonic entities in this dark world. And he says, therefore, you should put on the full armor of God. And he goes through that whole list. Our marriages should be so armored <laughs> with the armor of God that nothing can penetrate the armor and the shield that surrounds the protection of that unity of husband and wife. You're saying, but... I've done what I can to live at unity with them, but they're allowing these other things, and I can't control them. No, you can't. Just as God can't control you, he gives you a choice in the matter to choose him or reject him. But his desire is that you become one. But you're saying, Brandon, it takes two to become one. Yes, it takes these two halves to make a whole. And divorce, though allowable in many situations scripturally, still does damage. This is why in the prophets, it says God hates divorce. Why? Because it was never a part of his original design. It doesn't mean that he doesn't give allowances for it. It just breaks his heart that that's what the reality of relationships has come to throughout the course of human history. And so what is God, again, I go back to this, what is God's perfect ideal? Well, you, you, you have to go back before the fall. Genesis 1 and 2, we only have two chapters in the Bible where everything was perfectly good. And then you have a multitude of other chapters of have a God dealing with the problem of sin and trying to restore and redeem what was broken and what was lost. Sarah Lee and I can tell you that our marriage has not been easy, 
We've not had infidelity. We've not struggled with pornography. We've not had those. It's just doing life together with two stubborn people. That's enough for us. I don't know about the rest of you. She has a way of doing things, and so do I. And they don't always line up. And for the two of us to become one, it's not always easy. It sometimes feels like taking two pieces of a puzzle and it looks like they should go together, but one is slightly off. Have you ever tried to shove that puzzle piece? It's got to fit. Sometimes marriage feels that way, right? And you get this really, no, it doesn't fit right there. But this does. And when there are certain concessions that are made within our fallen and broken characters, the two become one naturally, the way God designed. But when you try to force your own way, guess what happens? I realize it doesn't work. Sarah Lee, you need to fold the towels this way, right? Well, your way's not the, always the right way either. No, but it's the best, right? <laughs> Hey, you don't clap for that. Because she says the same thing. Well, my way is just as right as yours. Right? In the first two to three going on four years of our marriage, if we weren't believers in Christ, if we hadn't set ground rules before going into marriage, we would have thrown in the towel a long time ago. We would have. And we will both tell you this. The two becoming one in this broken and fallen world is not easy, but it's good. It's necessary. I love her more now than I ever have. And the reason is because I know her more intimately now than I ever did. There's nothing we hide from each other. See, we can be naked and unafraid, and I don't mean physically. We can be vulnerable with each other. The enemy wants you to not be vulnerable. He wants you to see your nakedness and be ashamed. But in the restoration of the union of the oneness of a relationship is when Jesus comes into it and he says, look, warts and all, you are who you are, but I've made you good, and through me, you can be one again. Some of you are trying so hard to restore what's broken in your relationships through your own strength and your own power, and you're not getting anywhere. But Brandon, it takes two to make, you are correct. You can't do it on your own. It takes two to become one. And there are situations, you read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we'll talk about that a little bit next week, that's not going to be the whole of the sermon, but where there, you know, where God says, maybe, or well, not God, where Paul says, it's good that some of you stay single. If you could do that and you can live unencumbered by a relationship, it's okay. It doesn't go against God's will for some people to remain single and celibate. That's okay. But he says, if you're burning in your lust... It's better for you to be married. Why? Because there's somebody to share in that union with you in a healthy, holistic, God-like way that can fulfill you. But if you don't need that, you can live a single life completely dedicated to God in all you do. That's a whole different subject for a different time.
So who does God create? He creates woman from man who is of the same substance of him. Remember, we talked about this last week. Last week, in, uh, Genesis 1, 26, 27. And God said, let us make man in our own image, mankind. In the image of God, he created him, singular. Male and female, he created them. So God creates out of the goodness of who he is, image bearers of his to reflect his glory, and they are to reflect his glory as the two become one, which is what we're talking about this week. So who is this helper just suitable for him? This is where it goes off the rails in many of our churches and a false teaching is promoted that is not good, and it perpetuates the curse of the fall in Genesis 3, which we're going to talk about next week. What does the word helper mean in this context? It's called ezer. Say ezer. Oh, you are really good. You're learning Hebrew this morning. But there's another word that goes with it. Ezer is helper, but konegdu. Can you say that? Konegdu. Ezer konegdu. Translated appropriately means a complementary part, a connection of the two together. It's not one to lord over the other. This is where this has been mistranslated oftentimes, that the helper, she was created as the executive assistant to Adam right? She was to take notes. She was to do his bidding for him. No, that's not at all what that means. Before the fall happened, they were co-equals in this union together, having dominion and ruling over the earth. You may not like that. And it may take a while to take all of that stuff that maybe you've learned from false teachings and put it away. Women were not created subservient to men. Men were not created subservient to women. Did you know we were created as co-equals to rule together? Where does that go off the rails? I'll give you a little, little glimpse. If you go to Genesis 3 and you read of the different meeting out of different consequences that God said for the serpent, for the man, and for the woman. Guess what he says to the woman? I will increase your child pain, your childbirth pains, and you will desire, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Is God saying that this is what he's deciding to do to the relationship? No, he's just saying this is the consequence that's going to happen. This is what's going to result from your all's disobedience to partake of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You will desire your husband, but he will rule over you. And what do you see occurring after that point? Starting in chapter 4, you see at the very end of the chapter, in chapter 4, just one chapter over, a few generations later, you have this guy coming from the line of Cain who killed Abel, whose name is Lamech. He is the first person that takes two wives. Because at this point, when sin has had an opportunity to continue to grow and manifest itself within a society, women who are then ruled over by their husbands, husbands can say, well, they're more like property to me, so it's better if I have two than one. For sexual needs, for service needs, for whatever I need, I can start to take more than one. And then you perpetuate, <coughs> excuse me, in this whole lineage, even in Judaism, all the way throughout the Old Testament, what we call polygamy, or polygony, better appropriated, which we'll talk about again next week. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. 
This helper who is just right for Adam, this Ezra Konegdu, is a complementary version of Adam. Different, but of the same substance. And when put together, creates something that is one in unity. That truly reflects and manifests this image of God in the world. What does Adam say when she's created and he comes out of the deep sleep and he sees her for the first time? He'd seen all the animal kingdom and all the different pairs and then he sees her. What does he say? Woo! I'm translating into English. The New Living Translation says, at last. At last, as in meaning, finally. Somebody that I can connect with. Somebody who's like me, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She looks similar, but is different. She completes me. Remember Jerry Maguire? Last, you complete me. Right? This is the first, Jerry Maguire just stole that line from the Bible. At last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman. Now, I want you to understand something because we'll talk again about this next week, but he calls her woman. He doesn't name her woman because naming results in authority over. What does God do when he brings the animal kingdom to Adam? He allows him to name them. Naming gives authority, but he exclaims, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman. Where do we get the word Eve coming from? After the fall, when Adam names Eve at the end of chapter three, thus in essence, in giving authority, but, but the, the word Eve actually is a beautiful name, giver of life. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Now, I'm going to give you another Hebrew lesson. Did you know the word for man is two different things? It could be ha-adam, which is where we get Adam from, and that's mankind. But it's also ish, I-S-H, ish. Do you know what woman sounds like? Isha. Thanks, Jeff, my Hebrew scholar over here. Isha. Ish and Isha. The two become one of the same substance. David Atkinson writes, bone of my bones is the Hebrew expression which corresponds to our idiom, blood relations. Here's the closest human kinship which sets man and woman on an equal footing as regards to their humanity, yet sets them apart from the animals. There is also here a sense of satisfied relief that the waiting is finally over for Adam. God's provisions exactly fitted his need. The two are made for each other. The ecstatic response is expressly, poetically stated. There is a sense of delight and joyful embrace about the welcome when he sees her for the first time. And men, you probably know this, or women, you probably know this, when you've seen your spouse for the first time. Some of you may have said, I'm going to marry that woman, or I'm going to marry that man, because you have at last found someone that corresponds to you. 
But because we live in a broken and fallen world, it's not natural anymore to be one because we have a lot of stuff warring within us against the oneness and unity which God desires to create within our marital unions, all of our relationships, and within the body of Christ, and within the world, quite frankly. And we know that unity can only exist as rooted in him. Anything apart, if you are rooted in any other identity apart from Christ, you're rooted in something that's going to pull you away from true unity. The last thing I want to talk about, and then we'll go eat lunch, is leaving and cleaving. Therefore, a man will leave his father or mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one, or one flesh. Do you notice anything significant about that statement? Who does the leaving and cleaving? Who does the moving from one point to another? Who takes the initiative? Now, listen, don't get me wrong. I've said that it's a gentleman thing. My, you know, it's, it's always right for the man of the relationship to ask permission for marriage, even though you don't have to get permission, but to do the appropriate thing to go to the father or the bride and say, I would like your daughter's hand in marriage. I think that's sweet. It's gentlemanly, but it's rooted back in something significant in the traditions of Christianity and Judaism. Now, it did become perverted through the years, and we could talk about that next week, but suffice it to say, the reality is it's man that does the leaving and the cleaving. Do you know what happens in the Jewish culture? It's the woman that does the leaving and comes to the man's home because of the patriarchal structure. And listen, please don't get me wrong. I'm not a feminist, nor am I a patriarchy guy. I'm a biblical guy. These words have been taken out of context and perverted to be something that they're not. Okay, we'll talk about that next week. Leaving and cleaving. The one flesh imagery is unique to this human species. Think about it. Now there are, you can, I'm sure some of you, but these, these beasts mate for life, like geese and eagles. Do eagles do that? I probably should know that. I can't remember. Some of you say yes. So, uh, but rarely in the animal kingdom do you find species where they mate for life. Really, it becomes synonymous with humanity. This monogamous husband and wife relationship was created for a purpose. This one flesh purpose to leave and cleave is a part of that process. To start a new family unit is important. When I do premarital counseling with couples, I tell them as a part of the counseling that you are leaving the family unit of which you were a part of to start a new family unit. It doesn't mean that you are disassociating from them, but that you are starting something new in connection to who they are, but you are not them anymore. This is why I talk about healthy boundaries. Nobody likes to hear that. When you establish a new family unit, there are healthy boundaries you need to set around that family unit because you get to determine what you let into the sanctity of that relationship and of that home and what you don't let into the sanctity at home. You should do it because of your rootedness in Christ and your relationship with him because sometimes we let certain things into that marital bond that are unhealthy. We allow certain controls from without to control what's within and cause a lot of devastation. I see a lot of family conflict from this. Not that there shouldn't be advice given where advice is needed, but sometimes advice 
isn't necessary unless it's asked. Take that for what it's worth. Let me, let, me, let me close with this. Bill Zekian explains it this way. The marital bond is designed by God to take precedence over concern for the cohesion of man's original family. He is allowed to break away from the parental circle to establish a new independent relationship. According to this text, the parent's role remains passive at this point when he leaves and cleaves. The man takes the initiative to remove himself from his parents. He goes to his bride. He joins to her in this marital bond. And the man's freedom of action in moving away and making his own choices does not reflect a family organization dependent on a father ruler. Under a strict patriarchal system, the father ruler would be the one making those decisions to begin with. The, the son's father would be the one determining. And we find that in Hebrew, or in the Jewish tradition. Who goes and finds a wife for Isaac? It's the patriarch. It's Isaac's dad, right? Abraham, I want you to go to my family peoples over in this place, send the servant there to pick out a wife for Abraham. Do you see how even after the fall, even in the Jewish lineage, how the patriarchal structure had already established itself because God said, this is going to happen as a result of your disobedience. But know that that's not what I said was good. I'll work with it, but it's not what my ideal is. Do you find that God sometimes does that with you? I'll work with what you give me, but I would rather have I'd rather have it this way. Like pen drop in here. Are, are you guys with me? <laughs> God works with what we give him, but he, he desires all of us. Now, there will come a day when there will be a separation of the two. There will be a final judgment. And it's not going to be God measuring up all the good things that we did against the bad things, and then, boom, we get in because we did more good than bad. The reality is, is if we have truly unadulterated loved him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. That we believed in him through Jesus Christ, we submitted our lives to him, and we've given our lives over to him. I, I said this this morning in my class. It's about following God faithfully through a relationship with Jesus Christ and not following him perfectly. We should be perfect as he is perfect because we can't be perfect as he is perfect because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glorious standard of God. God made a way through Christ who was perfect so that we can become, we can come to the throne room of grace with confidence. Does this make sense? Okay, I feel like I'm way off base here. Or everybody's, just, it's rainy. I want to crawl back under the covers too. All right? Let me close with this as our worship team comes forward. Aloneness was not what God created for humanity. Okay? This doesn't mean, again, let me clarify. This doesn't mean that everybody is supposed to get married. But aloneness is not something that God created. On October the 4th, 1970, the famed rock star Janis Joplin, how many of you remember her? At the age of 27, was found dead in her Los Angeles hotel room. Questions arose as to whether the cause of her tragic death was suicide or an accident. Later, police reported that they located a small quantity of heroin in the rocker's uh, uh, in, in the green room where she was getting ready to perform. 
There were also needle marks on her arm. And just before the incident, Janice had admitted to her friend, she said these words, listen to this, when I'm not on the theater stage, I just lie around and watch television feeling very lonely. Marilyn Monroe, who had the world at her feet, died from an overdose of sleeping pills. She died in loneliness. The king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley, just before he died, wrote a note with these words. I feel so alone sometimes. I'd love to be able to sleep. I'll probably not rest. I have no need for all this. Help me, Lord. And then he writes, alone, alone, all alone, alone on a wide, wide sea, and never a saint took pity on my soul in agony. It's not good for any of us to be alone. And some of the people who are in this place right now and are in relationships feel so alone. You know that the Lord didn't desire that for you or any of us. The Lord desires for two to become one. He desires to repair the aloneness you feel, first off, with you connecting in a relationship with him. First things first. But then he created us to live in community together. The desert fathers of the uh, Christian tradition hundreds of years ago would sometimes go and live as hermits in the wilderness. And you know what they found living alone by themselves, vows of silences? They couldn't escape what was in their mind. As a matter of fact, many of them said it was harder to live alone in the wilderness dedicating your life to God than it was living around people who were adamantly against him. <laughs> we were not created to be alone. I don't know what that looks like in your marriage, your relationships. I, I don't know what that looks like for you, but God does. And God knows that his desire for you is something more than maybe you've desired for yourself. And yes, as much as it depends on you, you have to live at peace with one another. And sometimes you can't be reconciled to another who doesn't want to be reconciled to you. But you do whatever it is in your power to bring about what is good and right and holy. Let me pray. Father, I know there's brokenness in this world. I mean, we live in it. We see it. We eat, sleep, and breathe it half the time because it, it just sucks us in. It feels like we can't get away from it. It's like an albatross that rests on our shoulders, weighing us down with depression and anxiety and frustration and anger. And God, all of these emotions that were never a part of your original creation. We've forgotten what the one flesh ideology is, what that teaching is. And, and we made it into something of our own liking and desires versus what your liking and desire is. And I pray that in this place you'd bring a healing to broken relationships, that God, if there is no restoration possible for some that are broken, that God, you'd bring healing to the individuals in those relationships and restore to them the years that the locusts have eaten. I pray, God, your tender touch on the brokenhearted, the ones who are reeling from the devastation of betrayal, confusion, frustration, that you'd bring healing through the grief process. 
And Father, I pray that those marriages who are currently on the rocks, that the couples who are struggling to find a way through this deep, dark valley of dysfunction, that God, you would help both of them to make the right kind of concessions to surrender to you as Lord and Savior of their lives and to surrender their marriage to you so that there can be a godly foundation. Deliver us from evil in this place, God. We love you. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.